We are continuing this morning in the series on the Minor Prophets, so if you will, turn to the book of Micah. That is going to be in the, almost as close to the back of your Old Testament as you can get. And if you're keeping score, we're halfway through, which is number six of twelve. It's right after Jonah. And before everybody's favorite, Nahum. And as we, uh, as we consider the word of the Lord, let's go together in prayer and ask for his grace and understanding. Father, we are, we are going back. Millennia, and we're trying to understand an old book from a very different place at a very different time. And yet it's included in your word, it's included in this Bible, and so even though it may not have been spoken to us originally, it is still for us today, but Lord, we need your grace to understand it. Lord, they, just like they did, Lord, they needed your grace to have Micah's words applied to their hearts, Lord, we need your grace to apply Micah's words to our hearts. So, Father, would you open our eyes, open our ears, give us hearts that understand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark uh, McKinnon kind of stole my thunder this morning in Sunday school. Uh, but if you have, if you've been to a movie recently... I've been more recently in the past couple of months um, than I usually get to go. Uh, but if you, if you, it depends on the kind of movie you go to, right? You're not probably not going to see this if you go see a romantic comedy. But if you go see like an intense epic, like The Lord of the Rings, or excuse me, The Hobbit, which is what I got to go to with some of our students back in December, uh, you will notice that a lot of the movies that are coming out that that uh, that talk about the future paint a very bleak picture, right? Um, one that I can think of right off the top of my head, and this is just going to show you how nerdy I am. Um, I'm really excited about the new Avengers movie, Age of Ultron. I know you guys are too. Okay. Um, and what you, like, at the end of that trailer, at the end of that preview, I, I'm kind of left with this feeling of like, oh man, like the world's going to end and it's never going to be okay, right? Because Captain America's shield is broken and Thor drops his hammer and most of what I'm saying right now, you're just like, huh? Okay. Um, but that, if you want to get an idea of how our cult, of where our culture sees us going, just look at the movies, okay? And you will get a very bleak picture, one without hope, right? Where all of, all of the things we trust in, all of the heroes that we hope in are going to fail. Right? There's no way they're going to be able to overcome the evil that stands against them, and all is lost. Right? And that's probably how Micah's audience felt. Because here's what's going on. Right? Micah, is, uh, Micah lived at a time when Israel was about to fall. Right? And actually, you know that right? as, we, as we've gone through these prophets, uh, these first ones, they, they were working, they were ministering, at a time when Israel was about to die. Okay, so they were at the end, in a sense, they were at the end of the world as they knew it. Um, it's very likely that by the time Micah is preaching that 
the northern kingdom has already fallen to the empire of Assyria. And actually, at least in one of the episodes in Micah, what, what Micah sees is Jerusalem, right? The holy city, God's city, where the temple is, surrounded by Assyria's armies, right? Um, so all of the refugees from, from all over the empire have flooded into Jerusalem. The gates are shut. Food is scarce. Water is running out. Israel's king, Hezekiah, is a failure, right? He's tried to bribe the Assyrians, but it didn't work. And now there are legions of professional soldiers surrounding the city, okay? So things look really bad. Things look very bleak. And I'm sure a lot of those people were asking the question of, how did we get here, right? Because, in fact, if you, if you look in Micah, and we're going to talk about this, but other prophets were actually saying the exact opposite of what Micah was saying. They were saying, Micah, don't preach so negatively. Don't say such bad things. We're going to be fine, right? We've got the temple. God is on our side. But it was very, that was not very clear when the armies were pressing in and about to destroy the city, right? Um, and so they were probably asking the question of how did we get here? Aren't we the Lord's people? Aren't we the church? Don't we belong to God? And that's exactly what the Assyrians were saying. Like, where is your God now? What are you going to do? They were taunting them, right, from outside the walls. Um, but Micah knows how they got here because he'd been preaching on it for years. And like other prophets, right, Micah's message is a twin message. It's one of judgment and doom, and it's also a message of salvation and hope, right? All the prophets have that twin message, and you can't have one without the other. So here's what, here's at least the message of Micah, and we're going to do with Micah what we've done with the other minor prophets. We're going to kind of skip a rock across the surface, okay? We're going to pick some places, and we're going to tunnel down, but if you really want an in-depth understanding of Micah, you'll have to read him for yourself. This sermon is just kind of intended to give you a glimpse of a book maybe that, that you don't read often or that you haven't studied much. So, uh, but what we see in Micah is this, that in the face of increasing sin, your only hope is in an incomparable Savior. And that's what Micah's name means. Who is like God? Who is like the Lord? Uh, and actually that's how his book will end. In the face of increasing sin, your only hope is in an incomparable Savior. And so first, let's look and let's see what it is that God sees. Why is Jerusalem judged? Why is Jerusalem surrounded? Let's pick up chapter 1, verse 2. Micah says, Hear you peoples, all of you, Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And let's pause for just a second. Uh, this is not saying that God is a giant and that he is coming to like walk on the mountaintops. The high places were places of pagan worship, right? So when people... When people wanted to worship a god, any god, right, they would go up to a, 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 an altar that was built on top of a mountain, right? Because the thought being that if, 
if you wanted to get close to God, you just go to the top of the mountain, right? Our idea of a mountaintop experience, okay? And so that's where, that's where all of these pagan altars were. And so this is, this is not God saying he's going to come down and, and walk on the mountains. It's God saying he's going to come down and he's going to crush all of these idolatrous temples, Verse 4, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. That's not uncommon language as you've been here for the other prophets, right? The chief problem that Israel had was that she had lost her first love. She had, she had turned her back on the Lord and had begun practicing other idolatry, right? So let's just, let's just kind of get a, a scope of the Old Testament real quickly. Here's what, here's what happens. God chooses Israel... God makes them a nation. He rescues them from Egypt. Okay? And he leads them across the desert. He gives them a home and a land to call their own. And more than all that, he gives them himself. He says, I am your God. You are my people. And what they do in response is they say, gosh, that's nice, but we sure do need some other gods. We sure do need somebody else who's going to provide the way we want to be provided for. Following the Lord's law, that's kind of tricky. You know, this, this God over here doesn't really make those same demands. In fact, all I have to do to please this God is just, you know, make some sacrifices, right? And so that had been the common history in Israel, and so God is finally acting. On that, In fact, he's already acted and wiped away the northern kingdom, and now he's coming after the southern kingdom, right? So the, the chief sin, the primary sin is they have forgotten their first love. So what does God see? He sees idolatry. Not only that, God sees corruption and injustice. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? Good grief. Right? These are... Micah is talking to the leaders of his people, okay? These are the people who God, has cre- God, has, God had given Israel kings and prophets and priests, and their job under God was to lead the people in righteousness. 
But since they had forgotten the Lord, they now led the people in unrighteousness. In fact, it says that the leaders were almost cannibal-like in, their, in the way that they took advantage of people. They were corrupt. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry, Peace, as long as they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. All right, so what he's saying is, as long as the, as long as the prophets are well-fed or whoever is feeding them well, well, then they'll, they're going to prophesy peace. But as soon as things turn, turn bad for them, as soon as they don't get what they want, well, they're going to prophesy judgment against that person. And so what you see is that they're falling prey to the same thing, this love of money. Right, that they will they will preach whatever the highest bidder wants them to preach. Verse six. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision, darkness to you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets, and the day will be black over them. Skip down to verse nine. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet, they lean on the Lord and say, Isn't the Lord in our midst? No disaster shall come upon us. Right? So what God sees when he looks at, at Israel, when he looks at his people whom he has saved, he sees idolatry, he sees corruption, he sees injustice, and he sees false assurance. That although they are doing all of these things, although they are living counter to the way God has called them to live, they still think the Lord is on their side. Right? They look at the temple and they say, see, God is in our midst. Here's his house right here. He lives with us in the city. So no disaster is going to come upon us. And here's what the Lord says. Verse 12, therefore, because of you, Zion, the kingdom that you love so much, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house of the Lord, a forest. Right? All those things that you trust in so much, I'm going to wipe them out. Now, here's what, here's what we learn, too, when we look at chapter 3, verse 2, right? We've, if we go back, he says, You who hate the good and love, the, and love what is evil, right? Love the evil. Here's what we learn. Sin is not, sin is not simply a matter of, of following the law. Or breaking the law, right? Sin is, righteousness is not simply a matter of conforming to God's tradition. It's a matter of the heart, right? You who hate what is good and love what is evil. Sin is an indication of what you love. Or as Jesus would say in Matthew 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what Micah sees and what God sees is that Israel, his people, have a heart problem. Now, you may be thinking, and this is kind of intense, right? Like, this is a little much for a Sunday morning. Are we, I mean, is, is sin really that bad? Do we need, 
do we need to be so hard? Um, what we need to see is that Israel's problem is our problem, right? That we have a heart problem. Why, why do you lie to your parents, kids? Because you love evil. Why do, you, why do you flirt with someone who is not your spouse? Because you love evil. Why do you make a bribe? Because you love evil. Why do you trust in money more than in the Lord? Because you love evil. Israel's problem is our problem, right? We have the same heart problem that they did. Or as Jeremiah would say in that same chapter that Neil read from, right? The heart is deceitful above all things. It is incurably sick. Who can know it? Like I said, maybe that sounds extreme, Right? And if you're not a Christian here this morning and you think, man, see, this is exactly why I don't go to church because all I'm going to hear is bad news. You guys talk about other people's sin. You talk, you know, we're not talking about other people's sin. We're talking about our own sin. Right? This is me. Jeremiah 17, heart, that's me. And let me, and let me ask you this. Let, let, let's think honestly for a second. Haven't you seen the effects of sin in your own life? Even if for the, even if, Let's assume, let's not even use the word sin. Have you, if you are not a believer this morning, have you seen the effect that lying can have on your relationships? Right? Have you, have you lost a relationship, probably with a parent or with a close friend, because of sin, because of betrayal, because of lying, because of pain, because of hurt? That's, exact, that's exactly what Micah sees. Right? At the society level, doesn't, doesn't injustice bother you? Doesn't it bother you when the poor are taken, taken advantage of by the rich, like they were in Micah's day? Doesn't it bother you when the weak are taken advantage of by the strong, like they were in Micah's day? See, sin is, sin is real, and it wreaks havoc. It wreaks havoc in society, and it wreaks havoc in our lives, and its origin is a heart separated from the Lord. Its origin comes from within us, not from out there. Parents, do we parent that way? Right? Do we, do we parent after our children's hearts because, because they're evil? Or do we just try to conform them to a standard? Right? Sin is a heart problem. And if we're going to be honest, we have to go after our hearts. So here's what, that's what God sees. Here's what God wants. Flip over to chapter 6. What you see in in chapter 6 is that God actually brings a lawsuit against his people. Right? And um, Micah's the attorney representing the Lord. 6.1, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. And so what Micah is doing is he is calling creation to witness this lawsuit. Right? They are the witnesses in this lawsuit against God's people. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. 
Verse 3, this is the Lord's charge. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. And so here's what, here's what God is saying to his people. He's saying, remember what I've done. Remember how I rescued you. Remember your history. Remember my salvation so that you would know me. You've forgotten. Here's how Israel and oftentimes we respond, right? With what can I buy you off, right? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Right, so some of those things should sound pretty extreme to you, okay? Um, because God never called for child sacrifice, and yet here is, here is the people saying, okay, that they're actually doing exactly what pagans did at the time. What, what sacrifice can I make to get you off my back? What, what's it going to cost? What's your price? Is it a burnt offering? No? How about, how about a thousand rams, which nobody had except for a king? Right? How about just rivers upon rivers of oil? Will that do it? What if I give you my firstborn child? Will that... God, will that get you off my back? Here's what the Lord says. Verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love steadfast love and to walk humbly with your God. God says, I don't want your stuff. And I don't want your empty worship. I want your heart. And I want your life. Right? I don't... All of that stuff is irrelevant if I don't have your heart. Right? To do justice. Right? means to reflect God's righteousness when we relate to others. To do what is right, especially when someone else has been wronged. To love kindness or to love steadfast love. That word... Steadfast love, that's actually God's word. That's unfailing love. As the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, that's his never stopping, never giving up, unfailing, always and forever love. Right? Um, it's the love somebody has. If you're in a position of power and you show mercy to someone who is weak and they cannot return the favor, that's, that's steadfast love. Right? which is why the ESV translates it kindness. Maybe your version says mercy, right? Because the only way that you can love steadfast love is if you've known it. And then to walk humbly with God. In order to do justice and to love mercy, you must walk with a God who is both justice and mercy. As James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so... God is saying, I don't want your empty sacrifices. I don't want meaningless worship. I want your heart. 
And I want you to live a life that reflects what I look like. So if sin is a matter of the heart, is a heart problem, and what God wants is a righteous heart changed by Him, then, we're, then we have a problem, right? Because Jeremiah says the heart is incurably sick, desperately wicked, deceitful, right? And yet God wants me to live and love in such a way that it reflects His heart. But if I don't have His heart, what am I going to do? How is Israel going to survive? How are we going to survive? And that's how God rescues the heart, right? Go with me to chapter 5. Let's go back to that scene that I painted at the very beginning that the city is swelled three times its size because all, all of these people are shut in the walls. The city is surrounded Chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So Micah's pointing, painting a picture of what it looks like now. He says, muster your troops, right? And that would have been a very small band of soldiers against all of those armies. He's saying, put together what you can, right? And then he says... They strike the ruler of Israel on the, on the cheek, right? That's humiliating. The king is so powerless, he's being struck on the cheek by a rod from the other king, right? So things look pretty pitiful. How in the world are they going to be? How, how in the world are they going to get better? And maybe, and maybe you feel like that, right? Maybe, maybe sin has wreaked such havoc in your life that you feel this way, defeated, Surrounded, humiliated? What rescues you from that? 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, God shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Micah says, things look bad now. Things look hopeless now, but somebody's coming. And he's not coming from the great throne room of Jerusalem. He's coming from that little forgotten barn in Bethlehem. And he's a shepherd. And he's strong like David. And he's going to rescue his people. He's going to lead them like a shepherd should. And not just them, but the whole world, right? He will be their peace. I don't know if Micah ever saw that Messiah in his day. You know, usually in a prophet, they prophesy something that, they, that, that would eventually happen in their history. I don't, know if, I, don't, I don't know if Micah ever saw 
the Messiah. I don't know if he ever saw this shepherd king who would rescue Israel. Because Jerusalem would fall, not to Assyria, but they would fall over a century later to Babylon. They would eventually crumble. So who is Micah talking about? Well, when you read the Gospels and they quote from Micah 5, you realize he's talking about Jesus. That Jesus is the shepherd king. Jesus is the one who comes when his people are at their worst moment. When his people are stuck in their sin, surrounded, humiliated, defeated. And he says, I win. Right? It's in Jesus that justice and mercy meet. Because what does Jesus bear on the cross? He bears the wrath and judgment of God. Right? All of God's justice, all of that sin in your life and in my life that that wreaks havoc, the penalty for that is poured out on Jesus. Right? He's the one who tramples our sin under his feet. He walks up that hill... Right, having lived a perfect life, and he dies a sinner's death. But it's also where mercy meets. He's also the mercy of God. He's the one who brings his people out of Egypt, out of bondage. He's the king right, who comes back from the dead and is our righteousness. It's because of Jesus that we can read in Micah 7 of this incomparable God. Micah 7, 18 Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not keep his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Jesus is the one who will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He is the king of God's faithfulness. So this morning, well, let me, tell, let me give you an example of what this looks like. And I know we're, uh, we're running close. Um, so I, I talked with a friend this week, um, a friend who we sat in, uh, we sat in, seminary classes together. This is a man called to the ministry. Uh, He was married shortly after seminary and um, went on to be a a pastor, an assistant pastor at a church. He has three children. And I got an email from him two weeks ago, and he said, uh, I had an affair. I'm out of the ministry. I've lost my commission. He was a chaplain, the Army Reserve had an affair, I'm out of the ministry, I've lost my commission, my job, and my wife is filing for divorce. Okay? Um, Sin wreaks havoc. And its judgment is just. So what is his hope? Because as he said, he said, I'm having a hard time changing, right? Everything that matters is gone. What is his hope? It's the incomparable God who in, who in the midst of his people's sin, in the midst of their transgression, says, I'm, I'm coming for you. I've sent a shepherd 
over you. Micah 7, verse 8. I sent this to him just yesterday. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. What's a sinner's vindication? It's the crucified Jesus on the cross. What else can you look to? How else can a sinner say, I will be right with God? I cannot look at my record and say, okay, God, maybe this. Maybe you want this. Will I be, can I be good enough here? Will this buy your favor? No, the sinner's vindication is Jesus. It's the crucified Lord on the cross. It's the empty tomb. It's the grace of God that says, I will bring you out of the darkness and into the light. Do you know that, Jesus? Have you met the shepherd king? Let's pray. Father, when we know, when we hear the the gospel of your free grace, that even though we suffer the indignation for our sin, even though we are trapped in darkness and we are humiliated, we hear the word from Micah and we hear the word from Jesus that we will not be here forever, that you will bring us out. And you will not bring us out because of our righteousness. You will not bring us out because of, our, because of what we have to offer. You will bring us out because of Jesus' righteousness. You will bring us out because of what Jesus offered for us on our behalf in which we trust. So, Lord, I pray that if there is someone here who has not trusted in the righteousness of Jesus that saves, God, that they would do so. For those of us who profess to be Christians, may we again trust in the righteousness of another and not in our own so that we can say, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. We thank you for that. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.